I'm the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in my words... If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Remain. Remain. Jesus spends some of his last moments in this world speaking to his apprentices or disciples, and he spends it riffing on this one word again and again and again, remain. In fact, we see that this word remain pops up over ten times in these two paragraphs. One translation of the scripture actually uses the word abide instead of remain. The Greek word here being used is the word meno, which means to make your home in. And so what Jesus is doing is he's standing with his disciples in the last moments of his life, and he is telling them that they are to anchor themselves into God. He's telling us to anchor ourselves in and our hearts into the reality of Jesus and the reality of Jesus' love who is with us right now through his spirit. Uh, Judah, our four-year-old right now, will not leave me alone these days at all. He clings to me. When I leave the room, he leaves the room. When I sit down, he sits down. If you see me, if you catch me in my living room doing my P90X MMX routine, my kickboxing, you are for sure to see little man trying his own moves right next to me. Yesterday I went to rehearse this sermon, and I started to walk downstairs, and he goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going to practice and preach. He goes, I'm going to preach too. I said, no, man, no, you're not. Give me some space right now. I love you, but give me space. But this is the type of closeness and proximity that Jesus is actually referring to here. And Jesus is saying that this abidance or this remaining in is how we become fruitful like Jesus. It's how we become more loving as husbands and wives. It's how we become more joyful in a culture of cynicism. It's how we become more content in a culture of abundance. It's how we become more self-controlled in a culture of immediate gratification. It's how we become more peaceful, living as a non-anxious presence in an election year. The way we become more like Jesus and change the world is always and always has been very simple. You abide. You remain. You make home in. If you ever want to know the recipe to change your family, to change your marriage, to change your contentment, to change life, to change the city, it is you plus remaining. And it will always equate to transformation of self and the transformation of the city. But the question that I have is how? How in the world do I slow down enough to make home with and in Jesus? I don't know about you, but my emails come faster this way than they go out that way. Right now, the average for most people is we touch our smartphones over 2,000 times a day. 
Many of us in this room will spend over hours on text messages, all still while needing to run a household, handle doctor's appointments, and complete a task list for work, knowing that if you don't complete that task list, there's another thousand abled people waiting for your job in this city. And so the problem might be more acute than ever before, but it is an ancient problem. And often, ancient problems actually need ancient solutions. And so the answer today for us is something called a rule of life. Every year at Roosevelt Island, we try and talk about this. This year is potentially more important than ever before. We can trace this thing called rule of life back to at least St. Patrick, likely the second century. It was popularized by a man named St. Benedict. And it has resurfaced over the last few generations as one of the spiritual practice that may yet be able to form a people of substance in the frenzy of activity that we all face day to day. Now when I say rule of life, I know that sounds ancient. That's some ancient language. It sounds weird. But I want you to hear rule of life and not rules for life. This is a really important distinction. The language that's used here can actually be traced back to a Latin word, regula which means trellis, like something you would find in a vineyard. And this is really important imagery, agricultural imagery. If you've ever read the scripture, you know that Jesus often used agricultural imagery. And so what Jesus is trying to get across here, what the, what the church fathers are trying to get across here, what the church mothers are trying to get across here, is that you and I need something in our life that functions as a support structure that can lift us up off of the ground, that can create space for us and point us towards the optimal position for growth and fruitfulness. A vine by itself, if you've ever been to a fancy winery or vineyard, you know this. A vine by itself without no trellis is always going to be susceptible to disease. It will always be susceptible to deer and fox and raccoon and squirrel and other animals that will eat it. And it's likely to be trampled on. Without a regular without some type of supporting structure, the vine likely remains fruitless. And so we talk about this rule of life. A lot of what I'm saying today is coming from a, an author named John Mark Comer, who just wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I highly recommend it. We're going to be going through about a six-week teaching series on it coming out of the next few weeks. But another author, Andy Crouch, an intellectual, uh, said this about a rule of life. He said, a rule of life is a set of practices to guard our habits and to guide our lives. John Mark Comer would later say in his book, it is a schedule for life and a set of relational rhythms that create space to be with Jesus, be like Jesus, and do what Jesus would do if Jesus was us. Those words are also taken from another author named Dallas Willard. Now, this is a rule. It is not a, a law. Those are two different things. Let me give you a little summation of the differences here because this is important too. A law is something that's handed down to us from external sources. A law has very little flexibility. It is guilt and innocent based, and it's designed to keep, away, uh, keep us away from experiencing negative consequences. But a, a rule is different. A rule is self-generated comes from your own desire. We're going to talk about this in a second. It usually is very flexible. It's relationship-based, not guilt and innocent-based. And it's designed to index you toward a vision for, for a, a good life. The Gospel of John would call it the full life that Jesus came to give us. 
Now we know here on Roosevelt Island and the city as a whole that when you hit side streets, you're likely supposed to be driving about 20 miles an hour. And if you come to an intersection with one of those little kind of machines hanging above the intersection and that little machine turns red, you do what? Not enough of you. You do what? Okay, just checking. You stop. Because if you don't stop and you have the luck that I have, quickly there is going to be a traffic cop behind you. Those little lights on that traffic cop car is going to turn on. Your stomach is going to sink real quickly. You're then going to pull over and that cop, that police officer, is going to give you a ticket. And that police officer isn't going to go home that night and not be able to sleep and be all emotional as to whether or not they should have given you that ticket because it's a law. And he's just giving you or she's just giving you the natural consequences to make sure that people do the right thing so that nobody's dying. That's what a law does. A rule is a bit different. Part of Amanda and my rule of life is that we will go out on a date weekly. It is not a law. We just know that if we do not get out, we will likely die a slow, slow <laughs> death from being in close quarters with six children for seven nights a week. And we love them. We really do. We love our children. We just know that we cannot cultivate romance with Judah hanging on my leg. It is not going to happen. Now, there are weeks, like we just traveled three out of the last four weeks. There are weeks where that's really hard to keep that rule. And when we don't, Here's the great thing. We don't feel guilty about it. You know what we do feel? We feel off sync. We start to feel like we're more business partners than actual husband and wife. We feel a bit more disoriented. But there's a reason that we have this in place. It's a discipline that helps us create space for a loving relationship. Plus, the woman saved my life, so I owe her a lot of dinners. Right? Now, there are three really good effects that a rule of life will have if you implement one into your life. The first is this. It helps us turn ideas into reality. And so a good rule of life is always going to take these very high idealistic theological concepts that are all really good, like agape love, self-sacrificing love that Jesus shows us in the scripture. Or uh, uh, the, the, the Trinity community or a Trinitarian community where we get to share in this relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or a grace-filled or a spirit-filled life where we get to tangibly experience the power and presence of God. These are all really incredible things, but it's the rule of life that helps boil these lofty theological principles down into practices that actually embed them into our muscle memory instead of them all devolving into another sentimental or detrimental Christian cliche. A lot of us know all about those things, and we never experience them because they're not embedded into our muscle memory. And so one of the things that a good rule of life does is that it helps turn really good ideas into reality. Secondly, it helps us live in alignment with our deepest desires. This is important. One of the New Testament authors, authors a, guy, uh, excuse me, a guy named Paul, he talks often about a, a war of desires in us. He talks about this animal primal piece of the brain that Paul actually refers to as fleshly desires. They're very real desires, but he calls them the desires of the flesh. And then he starts talking about the desires of the spirit, these deeper desires that we start to experience and we get to live out of when we make our home in Jesus. And the, the schema for these types of desires are much more deep and much more nuanced than the, 
do whatever you feel makes you feel good kind of desires that the city tells us we should buy into. In addition, feels like it potentially has never been easier to get sidetracked by the animal side of our brains than in the digital age. We now have marketers and market researchers that have actually manipulated and monetized the primal side of the brain into overdrive where the temptation for power and popularity and the temptation for vision or wealth or resources is felt to a degree that potentially we have never felt before as humans. T.S. Eliot, long before the 2007 technological boom of the smartphone, said, in this twittering world where we are distracted by distractions. I thought that was awesome because he even used the twittering word long before Twitter. <laughs> Marketers and market researchers manipulate the animal primal side of the brain. They've monetized it. So that we are focused on that primal side that it deals with competition and domination and sexuality, which are all things that we need to be honest about. But what happens is that this rule of life becomes this act of defiance against that digital empire. It helps us stay true to those deeper desires that we were actually made to have, like union with God and intimacy with others and being formed into the likeness of Jesus. But there's this third thing that a good rule of life will do for us. Not only will it help us take these big ideals and make them into reality, not only will it help us live in alignment with those deeper, more meaningful desires from the Spirit, but thirdly, it should help us experience peace in our lives. Shalom is what the scripture uses. Shalom is that deep sense of trust that God is good, that he looks like Jesus, that he is great, that he is in control even when it doesn't feel like it. He will bring good out of the worst case scenarios, that he is gracious and that he is satisfyingly good. It's the revelation scripture that says there will be a time. This is so important right now is to remember that there will be a day where there will be no more tears and no more pain, no more pride. The old order of things will pass away and the new will come. Complete restoration and redemption. We're meant to experience that in part now. Stephen Covey, the author of Habits of Highly Effective People, said we achieve inner peace when our schedules are in alignment with our values. And John Mark Comer, who wrote this book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says, This is not a quote from the Bible, but if I was a heretic, I'd put it in the Bible because of how good that quote is. Why? Well, because so often our schedules aren't in line with our values, and it produces this underlying anxiety that keeps us restless, and as William Irvine put it, misliving. And so I understand this is all kind of overwhelming because the majority of us in this room are like, I just am trying to get through Monday. I'm just trying to remember what I got to do tomorrow and get through Monday. So the whole idea of having a system and rule for my entire life sounds a bit overwhelming. I get that. I get it. We're going to talk a little bit more about nuts and bolts next week. A man is going to be preaching and teaching us. And then we're going to actually have some time to go downstairs, eat some pizza together, and actually have some facilitated conversations with templates. And we'll, we'll give you some tools that will make it feel less overwhelming. But also... There's some people in here that are like me, that as soon as you start talking about rules and get a list of things that we should do, are like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do exactly other than that. 
I get it. I'm one of those people. Stick it to the man. It's tough. And one of the reasons why it's so tough is because the overwhelming message that society is giving us is that rules are bad. Society tells us that rules are what constrict and constrain us from freedom. They keep us from freedom instead of setting us free to experience intimacy with God and, and experiencing our best selves. However, there is this deep part of all of us that craves some type of order in the midst of our chaos. Even like the creative types of us, I like to just kind of live life by the seat of our pants, there's still a piece of those people in here that know we want some type of order out of the chaos. I've started to read bits and pieces of an author and, and watched this author. His name is Jordan Peterson. Anybody know Jordan Peterson here? Anybody heard of him? Younger, younger millennials can track with, with this guy, Jordan Peterson, and he fascinates me. Uh, he is, to give you a summation of who he is, he is a Canadian public intellectual, a clinical psychologist. I think at one point, maybe still, he was a professor at the University of Toronto. And uh, he's, he critiques the far left, critiques Marxism, critiques a lot of postmodernity. And what's hilarious when you start looking him up is you realize pretty much everybody hates him. Uh, the far left hates him because he's too conservative for the far left. The conservatives hate him because he's really not a conservative. And so he, he's become this social pariah where everybody just critiques this guy. And yet everybody flocks to a lot of his teaching and a lot of his writings. And his last big book that he wrote is called this. This is what's cracking me up. It's called 12 Rules for Life. That is like the most non-millennial title you possibly could have. And it is millennials that pack out places to hear this guy talk about what he believes and kind of his systems for life. To date, over the last year and a half, at least in the English-speaking parts of the world, 12 Rules of Life has been the number one bestseller on Amazon.com. So let me kind of paint a picture of the irony of all this. As our culture is spinning into this antinomian kind of way, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, the far left is just carpet bombing every type of world religion, going, there's no truth, truth is all relative, be who you want to be, do what you feel like is right for you. The best-selling book in the world is a book about rules. If you start to dabble in some of his writings, you find that one of the ways he starts this book is through Genesis 1. He starts writing on Genesis 1, telling his readers that there is this deep human urge in all of us to create order out of chaos. And he's honest about the fact that there is always this tension between chaos and order, between spontaneity and structure, between rules and freedom. And his opinion is this. It's a really good one. His opinion is at every season of history, culture has either slanted one way or the other. And during the seasons that culture has slanted towards structure and rules, there have been groups of people that have felt oppressed or suffocated like women. Like people of color, to different degrees, but it's there. Historically, it's there. He says right now, it's slanted the other way, where when there's too much freedom, when there's too many options, when there's FOMO and something that the fear of missing out on things, and that level of abundance, you start to find this, that there is an underlying anxiety with individuals, with families, and with entire cities. 
And I would say he's right. He is right in line with all of the empirical data that anxiety is increasing in most large cities around the world. Case in point, I go over to Nisi for lunch. And I sit down, and dear God, I just want to see the four things that you are really good at preparing for my lunch. And instead, like most stereotypical New York diners, right? This is no matter where I go, this is the New York diner way. You, in accordion-style fashion, unfold 39 pages of all of the different specials that you can have. And as I do it, I actually feel my limbic system freak out like there's a tiger chasing me. Because I'm like, I don't even know what to do now. I don't know where I live. I don't know anything. This is what happens when we have too many options. It's what, it's what happens. And for upwardly mobile societies, we have more options. And the more options you have, stereotypically, the more anxiety you will feel. Now, this isn't in a political context, but child psychology says that when it comes to mental health, it is more beneficial for a child to grow up in a conservative home versus a liberal, not political, talking about structure, because kids thrive in structure. So again, I know that there are some of you in here going, this seems way too big. I'm just trying to figure out how to take care of my parent right now. I'm just trying to figure out how to survive and get by, but we talk about this all of the time. The more that we are stuck in survival mode, the less likely we are able to thrive. This rule is about thriving and experiencing the fullness of life that Jesus came and proclaimed in the Gospel of John. If you are here and this feels overwhelming or you're just like a stick-it-to-the-man type of person like me, here is something for you to consider as we close. You already have a rule of life. You already have it. Whether written or unwritten, whether conscious or subconscious, whether wise or foolish, whether based on long-term vision or short-term instant gratification for what you want to feel, you have it. You have a morning routine. You have a routine for how you go to bed. You have something embedded in your muscle memory that tells you when the first time of the day is that you will pick up your smartphone. You have ways you spend your money. You have a set of sexual ethics. You have a way that you actually view and value your body. The question is not do you have a rule of life. The question is do you know what that rule of life is and do you know, church, what it is actually doing to you? The things you are doing do something to you. As one philosopher said, first we make our choices and then our choices make us. And every choice we make will lead us toward freedom or toward captivity and slavery. Every choice we make is going to move us closer to being awake to the presence of God or more, more numb to the presence of God. And so we kind of end our, our, our time of, of epiphany, that's the word that the church calendar gives it, where we are celebrating the fact that God loves you so much that he came into the world to show you exactly who he is. He shows you the vulnerability of his love as he comes into the world as a child. He shows you the depth and the width of his love as he says, I'm not going to stay distant or quiet. I'm going to pursue my people and be forever present with them through the spirit. He comes to you and he loves you enough. And we always say this at Hope slash Mosaic. We always say this 
He loves you so much, we see this in Jesus, that he will only meet you where you really are. Not where you should be, not where you could be, not where some past priest or pastor or weird spiritual guru says you should be. He meets you where you really, really are. And he loves you so much and his presence is so powerful and so transformative that he also promises he will not leave you there. He will change you. He will shift you into a new creation. People think that Jesus is all about making a bad people good. He's about making a new people. A new people. One of the primary questions of the Christian faith is who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? Lucy, our sweet eight-year-old girl, she loves writing cards. And so the other day for Christmas, she wrote one with a laundry list of the things she loves about both Amanda and myself. And so the first was, Dad, Dad, you're great. You do such good things for people. You're a great speaker, da, da, da. And then she said, Mom, and you are too, but, but also you cook and you care for us and all the school stuff. And I was like, dang, like in this little brief kid's card, you have clearly communicated that Amanda is the indispensable one. <laughs> of course. But I realize as I, as I read that card and I, as, I, as I receive affirmation from people, I realize I'm so often defined and remembered by what I do. But I desperately want to be known for who I've become. Because as God is changing me and as the fruit of the Holy Spirit is surfacing out of my life, it is a testimony to the world that God is not distant, but he is near. That God is not quiet, but he speaks to me. That God is not dormant, but he is acting on my behalf and he is changing me. The question, who are you becoming, is potentially the best question to set the whole world on fire with the love of God. He has come to make you new. And I know at the beginning of the year, the temptation is, to, is going to be to set these big, lofty, idealistic goals of how life is going to change in 2020. But if you're like me, you know that doesn't work. Because then all of a sudden, Judah starts hanging on my leg. I'm like, I can't do half the things that I was supposed to do. And so what we are suggesting to you today... And at the beginning of this year is that it is not the lofty, idealistic goals that are going to change you and your family and your marriage and your household and your friendships and your city. It is instead some ancient practices that will be put in place and that will draw us to a place where we are fully awake to the good love of a good God that sees you as his kids. And that is good news. And so I want to pray for us and then we will finish our time by receiving communion together.